Last week, we saw, didn't we, King Saul, an outwardly religious man, and yet a, complete, a completely unconverted man at the same time. We saw how he acted foolishly in offering that sacrifice when he was not authorized to do so. Instead of waiting for Samuel, he rashly, rashly and, and impatiently Pragmatically, he chose his own way instead of obeying God's voice, instead of obeying God's command. And Saul's disobedience, as we saw, a disobedience that uh, marks his entire life, caused God to reject Saul as a king, to reject his whole family as a dynasty. And because of his disobedience, Samuel himself, he removed, abandoned Saul, indicating that God's presence, that God's word was being removed from Saul's reign. So as we left with regards to Saul in chapter 13, we left him in a kingship as a king who is destined to fail. A king without guidance of God's word in essence, we left him in a dark place because of his own disobedience. But we also saw, didn't we, that not only Saul was in a dark, difficult place, the people of Israel themselves found that the Philistines were gathered against them and they were numbered. They were of a number that was too big to count as, man, as much and as many as the sand on the seashore. And we saw the darkness and the despairing, helpless, hopeless situation that they were in. However, but God, as we were considering this morning, however, true to his own way, God shines in the darkness as that famous motto of the Reformation says, post tenebrous lux, after darkness came light. And in the midst of this dark, hopeless and helpless situation, God reveals himself. And that's very much how God, true to his own way, uh, throughout history, seeks to demonstrate himself, to showcase his mighty arm. He waits until there is no other humanly worldly option solution available and that God comes in so that everyone who sees and looks at the situation might say truly it was God's doing it was true in in Samuel's day in this chapter as we'll consider it was true in the Reformation as we remember this Sunday it was true as we remembered even this morning in our own salvation. It was in the, in the deepest pit of despair and hopelessness and helplessness that God comes in. And because of his great love with which he loved us, he saves us. The Lord delights in acting this way. And God so often acts in these ways by using 
faithful and faithful, faithful and manful or women full of faith, as means. Where one man failed, where Saul uh, failed in obeying, in trusting the Lord, God raised up another. And that demonstrates for us that God loves his people too much to leave them. Not because this, their people are lovely, but because of God's great namesake, as we consider in chapter 12. And in our passage today, we see God raising up a man. We already considered them briefly last week. Today we look in a, in a little bit more detail. A man named Jonathan, Saul's own, own son, to fight the battle and to showcase for us faithfulness and a life full of faith. I didn't have time to alliterate this sermon or the, the sermon uh, points, so we'll forgive me, but we'll look at it in five points. Number one, we'll look at Jonathan as a man of faith. Number two, we'll look at Jonathan's faith, its object and essence. Number three, we'll look at Jonathan's waiting of faith, seeking God's will, seeking God's way. Number four, the action of faith. And number five, the reward of faith. So firstly, Jonathan himself, let us look at his circumstances. Jonathan is a man of faith. He is presented to us very much as an example of a man of faith. Our text begins by telling us that Jonathan, uh, with, his young, with this young man who bore his armor, he went uh, to the Philistine garrison. And this decision to go there, let's not mince any words, is unwise, humanly speaking. In fact, not just unwise, without using hyperbole, uh, hyperbole, without using hyperbole, it's a suicidal mission. It's a suicidal idea. Two men going off to face this, this army that is more countless than the sand on, on the seashore? What can two men do against this mighty foe, against such great numbers? But all is not what, as it seems, is it, so often in Scripture, because these two men, as we'll see, they are not alone. Jonathan has the Lord by his side. And one man with God is very much an unstoppable force. Jonathan, he could not look for, to Israel for help. As we saw last week, and I'm not going to rehearse this, they were in a desperate situation. They were hiding in holes, in pits, in, in graves. So he could not look to Israel to help. Their condition was tragic. Never in their history they were in, uh, I would say, they were in such a bad, uh, helpless situation, despairing situation as they are in now. He couldn't look at his father, the king, because he seemingly uh, is unwilling to obey God's voice and to live by faith. But yet, there is this foe that is dishonoring God's people, very much like David will do after, uh, after him. There is this sense of outrage in him. These uncircumcised coming against the people of God, coming against uh, the God of Israel. So Jonathan, he is a man of faith because he understands 
He understands that God's honor is to be upheld. And this is a lesson that Jonathan most certainly learned from Scripture. Well, one wonders how much of Scripture was uh, present and available to him by this time. Certainly the, the writings of Moses, certainly perhaps something of the history of Joshua. And in Joshua, in chapter 23, we read that one man of you shall chase a thousand. He knows, Jonathan knows the history of the people of God. How often one man was able to defeat a whole army. And surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, Jonathan does not let his father know. I think it was very good for him not to tell his father. I think the, the contrast here, or what is implied here, is that had he let his father know, his father would have objected and uh, hindered him from going. But he's a man of faith. And a man of faith, and, or, and a man or a woman of faith, faith does not confer with the flesh. It does what the Lord requires. Oh, Saul was, was there, we read in, in, uh, in Gibeah, in the outskirts of Gibeah, under a pomegranate, perhaps despondent at the situation that he faced himself. And he was not alone. The rest of the people were there. There were not many by now, 600 men. Even then, if he was a man of faith, 600 men would, would go a long way. But there is another one with him. And I don't know if you noticed uh, Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phineas, the son of Eli. When I say I don't know if you noticed, I know you read it, but I don't know if you noticed who this Ahijah is in the context of the letter of, uh, of, the, letter of the book of Samuel. It's been, it's been more than a year since we considered, but you remember that Eli was rejected. His line was rejected as a priestly line because of the, of the sinfulness of his sons, Ophni and Phineas. And Ichabod was a son that uh, represented the glory departing. That's what the name means. And now we read that Ahijah, this priest from a rejected line, the nephew of Ichabod, the grandson of uh, Phineas, the great-grandson of Eli, this rejected priest, he's uh, uh, there with, with this rejected king. We ask ourselves, what help can he be? Perhaps Jonathan himself, he knew. After Samuel retired, after Samuel withdrew his uh, blessing and his uh, help to Saul, Jonathan knew that the writing, as they say, was proverbially, proverbially on the wall. And the picture is clear. The king, Saul, Ahijah, the rejected priest, there they are, sitting despondently, helpless, with nothing to do, or not knowing what to do. And here is Jonathan, a son of faith, acting upon it. On the one hand, Saul. On the other hand, Jonathan. The contrast, as I said last week, chapter 13 and 14 go together as the one story. The contrast is meant for us to see and to highlight. Which leaves, go, 
leads us to the second point, the faith that Jonathan had. We can hardly say that Jonathan's faith was a, a product of, um, of his environment. The people of Israel were faithless at this moment in time. Perhaps only Samuel comes across as, as someone that has faith in God. The rest are either hiding, despondently uh, sticking by the king that they asked for, which basically was a rejection of, of God as their king. So Jonathan doesn't have faith because he is in an environment filled with faith. He certainly wasn't nurtured by his dad in this aspect. His father had failed miserably in this regard. But somehow, by God's grace, Jonathan's roots sank deep into the, to the foundation of faith. He had learned to trust in God. He had learned to trust God in the impossible. He understood that without faith, it is impossible to please God, as the author of Hebrews says. And what we see in Jonathan is biblical faith. It's not, a, it's not an unrestrained optimism, is it? Some people are ever the optimist. They are the half kind, uh, half full kind of, uh, half uh, cup, half full kind of people. But that's not how Jonathan comes across in this. He's not the, the his, his actions here are not the, the fruit of blind or naive optimism that fails to see the circumstances. It is not unrestrained optimism or wishful thinking. He, he's acting in faith. Faith, as the author of Hebrews uh, again tells us, is the evidence of things not seen. A quick look at the details of this passage, again, I won't rehearse them, tells us that it wasn't the circumstances that caused them to be optimistic, to go and, and face off against the, the Philistines. And if, you don't, if you're not convinced, just look at the end of chapter 13 to figure that out. What we have here is faith. What we have here is not optimism, but pure, unadulterated faith. And this faith arises in such a situation because it looks not at the circumstances, but to the sovereign God, who is able to do the impossible. And let me just point out five elements of Jonathan's faith as we go through the, through the text. First of all, his faith is bold. He says, come, let us go over to the camp of these uncircumcised there. Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It is boldness. Faith leads to boldness. Notice how he refers to them, these uncircumcised. Remember last week, perhaps if you were here, I said that uh, there was one word in Saul's uh, discourse that kind of betrayed his lack of, of godliness when he called the Israelites Hebrews which is normally a term that is only used to refer to non-covenant, in a non-covenant kind of way to, the, to, the, to God's people. It's, it's their ethnicity. It's just, that's what you are. You're a Hebrew. There's nothing to do with their uh, status as the people of God. And that, how that one word kind of already betrayed his lack of faith. 
In that same way, the, the way that Jonathan here refers to the Philistines, he calls them uncircumcised. It, it tells us, it compels us to think that Jonathan is not only thinking in worldly terms, he's thinking in terms of covenant. These uncircumcised, we are the circumcised. What is circumcision? Rep what does rep circumcision represent? It represents that we are in covenant with God. We are in covenant with God, and these uncircumcised are facing against us. He's thinking in terms of faith. How dare such men presume to fight against God and his people? It's that language of Psalm 2. And again, if this language causes you to feel uncomfortable, well, you need to read your, your Bible, because that's the language of Scripture. The, the language of, of warfare is present. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in, in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That's what the Philistines are thinking. But then, this is what God is thinking. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold him in derision. The reason why Jonathan is bold is because he understands that there is a covenant-keeping God by his side. And faith empowers that man, empowers Jonathan to believe that God can and will work his great purpose in this matter. He believes that God is able to do even the impossible. Him and his armor bearer against a garrison of thousands upon thousands. Doesn't matter. One man with God is an unstoppable force. The second element of his faith, which I think is, doesn't come naturally to us to, to think in this way, but is clear in the text, is that faith does not presume. Faith does not presume on God's will. Look at how he expresses it here. Come, let us go over to the garrisons of the uncircumcised, verse 6, and then it may be that the Lord will work for us. Isn't it wonderful? Faith, true faith, does not presume to know what God is going to do. Faith knows what God can do and trusts in God to do those things, but does not presume that God will act in the way that we want. How can anyone know what God will do at any given time? Especially in these kind of matters. There are things that we are told that God will do. And those things we are called to trust uh, and, to, and to rely upon. There are things that we don't know. Maybe God will do this. Maybe God will not do this. Nonetheless, we trust in him. This maybe of Jonathan is not a maybe of unbelief. Don't be fooled to think that when, when Jonathan is saying it may be that the Lord will work for us, Jonathan is, is kind of like he's 70% in faith and 30% he kind of doesn't know if God uh, is able. No, he knows God is able. He doesn't know if God will do it. But nonetheless, he was go he's going to walk forward. And so often in Scripture, we find that men and women led by this sentiment, this faith that leads them to think it may be, it may be. Actually, 
works itself into a justified uh, right action and is commended to us as something good. This, the four lepers in the Syrian camp, as recorded to us in, in the 1 Kings, they, they were hard-pressed on one side. They couldn't go into the city because they were lepers. On the other side, they had the Syrian uh, army, and they were there. They were, hung, uh, they were struggling, struggling. They were uh, famished. They were going to die of hunger. And one of them says, it may be. Let, well, we cannot go into the city because there's no food there. We're going to die here. Let us go there. It may be that they'll be gracious to us. It may be that we will not perish. It was the Ninevites. When, when, uh, when Jonah comes to the Ninevites and gives them the, 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 the faithful uh, message that destruction is coming, we're not told that Jonah offered them a, a solution, salvation or, or, or deliverance if they repented. But we're told that some of them conferred with one another and says, who can tell? Let us repent. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger? It was the it may be for them that led them to repent. It was a, a, a may be that led the, wo the woman with the blood flow to come and touch Jesus' garment. It wasn't the touching of Jesus' garment that cured her, but it was the, that, that faithful attitude of her thinking it may be this man is healing up and down the land i'm going to go and touch the hem of his garment it may be that god will heal me she was healed it was the the the, the three israelites in uh, in babylon the music rang they refused to bow before the statue of nebuchadnezzar they are brought before the king and they say we will not bow if you need to burn us, if you need to throw, throw us in the furnace, throw us. It may be that God will deliver us, but anyways, it, we will not bow. He is able to deliver us. We don't know what he's going to do. It may be that he does it. And in fact, it was. And there's so many other examples. I have a list here, and I, I don't want to go through all of them. But the widow of Zarephath, Abraham taking his son to be sacrificed on the, uh, on the Mount Moriah. It may be that God will raise him from the dead, he thought. Centurion's servant, Peter walking on the water, the Canaanite woman, the Gentile woman coming to Jesus. It may be that I'll eat the, bread, the, the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You see, faith does not presume to know what God does, but trust that God is able, because God is a God who is able to work the impossible. Because that's the third point here, that faith has a clear conviction about God. God is not limited to save. God is not restrained to save. He can save by many. He can save by a few. There's no telling how God will accomplish his will, but God will accomplish his will. And perhaps Jonathan will say, and God has said that he would deliver us from the ends of our enemy. I don't know if he's going to do that with me or not. I know he's going to do it eventually. It may be that he does that with us now, with him now. Because faith, number four, recognizes God's usual way of working. Maybe many, maybe few. The reality is there may be none. God does not need us 
for anything. God is pleased to use us as instruments to accomplish his purposes. Jonathan is not confident in his bold plan. That's what, I, that's what, I, what, is, what I'm coming at. Jonathan's faith is not that his plan is watertight. He, he very well knows he's not a foolish man. He very well knows that his uh, plan is suicidal, to say the least. Jonathan's confidence is not in himself, but Jonathan's confidence is in his Lord, in the Lord God of Israel. His trust is in God. And he relies and he knows this because of God's past faithfulness. And number five, and lastly, as we consider the object and the essence of Jonathan's faith. Jonathan's faith encourages more faith. The armor bearer is encouraged and he himself uh, demonstrates faith. And he says, well, let us go. I am here with you according to your heart. But it's interesting, isn't it? Number three, that Jonathan's faith is a waiting faith as well. It's not a faith that acts rashly. In the same way that Saul acted so rashly, so impatiently, Jonathan is not one to act rashly or impatiently. He waits to be sure that God is with him. And he devises this test. Well, we will wait here and we'll stand. If they tell us to stand, we'll stand. If they tell us to come, we know that the Lord has handed them over uh, to us. This will be a sign to us of his doing. And the Philistines, they saw the two Israelites there as they presented, and they started mocking them. They started mocking them. Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Look, here's the Hebrews crawling out of their little holes where they've hidden. And they, and they, they defy him. Come up to us. Come up. I'll, I'll show you something. I'll teach you a lesson. Come up. Well, little did they know that their mockery was God's sign of their doom, was God's heaven-given sign that God was delivering them into the hands of Jonathan and his armor-bearer. How easy this world mocks the Christians, isn't it? The worlds look at the Christians, see the few in number, see us uh, small and helpless and hopeless, uh, humanly speaking, and they mock and they laugh. And yet, we know, even as we think today of the Reformation uh, Day, of that 31st of October of 1517, we know that God often turns the world upside down, as he did in the days of Paul, with, with, with just a few Trembling fishermen, uh, illiterate fishermen in the first century, God can turn the world upside down and accomplish his purposes. And that's what we see here with Jonathan. We find this to be true. But that, this is beautiful. Before I move on, and I, I need to hasten to the, to the last two points. This is beautiful to see. And I know I use this subjective. Some people say I use it uh, incorrectly and too much. But this, this is beautiful to see. Look at Jonathan. He comes alone with God. But he is not just himself. Look there at verse 12. I know we only got to verse 12. We'll, we'll move forward uh, quickly uh, from here. But look at verse 12. 12, his confidence. 
Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Isn't that unusual? If you're Jonathan, wouldn't you say, The Lord has delivered them into our hands, into my hands? Isn't that unusual? Why the hands of the Israelites? The Israelites are hiding in their holes. And the few that are not too scared to hide in holes, they're hiding in Gibeah behind Saul, and, and, and there's just 600 of them. And yet Saul, uh, Jonathan here identifies himself with the people. His victory is his people's victory. Whatever condition the people were in, they were still his people. They were still his kindred. They were still his. And there, outside of the camp of Gibeah, outside of the camp of the Philistines, he identifies with his people, even as he is reproached for his people's miserable failings. Isn't it? The Hebrews are mocking him, not because of what Jonathan or his armor bearer is doing, but because of what his people had done. They're reproaching him for the ineptitude and the shortcomings and the failings of his kindred. And yet, he identifies with them. I don't think I'm looking into much because the Spirit is the one who inspired this text. <laughs> Jonathan comes across as a type of Christ. We see something of Christ in him, bearing the reproach of his people alone or almost alone. He has his armor bearer, but almost alone or almost alone, facing off the enemy that is too big for the people to defeat. But he defeats them alone on our behalf. I, I know it's true, and we want to mimic Jonathan's faith. We want to be as faithful as Jonathan. We want our faith to be bold and to be uh, waiting on the Lord and to be action-driven. Uh, but let's, not be, let's be honest with us. We're not Jonathan in this story. We're the Israelites hiding in the holes, and Jesus is our Jonathan, that identified with us and bore our reproach and defeated the enemy alone. He's the one who fought our battle. And this story will play out again and again. David and Goliath. He's mocking the Israelites, but there's young David and he faces the enemy of God's people and he defeats them. And they rejoice. Over his victory. Just like the Israelites here. They rejoice over Jonathan's victory. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Fourth point. In verse, from verse 13 we see that his faith is an actionable faith. It's a faith that acts. You can say that you have faith. But if your faith doesn't lead you to action. Doesn't change the way you, you, you behave. That faith is is nothing. Faith waits upon the Lord, but faith also, after waiting upon the Lord and being commissioned by the Lord to do something, it acts against all odds, against all possibilities, against all things that might go wrong. 
The picture is clear. Jonathan receives the thumbs up. Jonathan receives the green light that the Lord has indeed delivered them into their hands. And there he goes. He's scaling up that mountain, up that rock. And I don't need to tell you, that's a very unfortified, uh, weird way to begin an assault at a garrison of thousands of thousands, even when you're, uh, especially when you're two. A rock thrown by one of them would have instantly killed them. It's not like they're trying to sneak up on them. They know they're there. He doesn't care. Why? Well, if a rock comes, you'll, you'll fall down. You, you'll at least get hurt. Most certainly die. It seems like uh, it is a big rock that has been talked about here. But why doesn't he care? Because he knows that underneath him are the hands of the Almighty God to sustain him. So he climbs. He reached the, reaches the top. And what does he do? With a single sword and his armor bearer by his side, they confront the garrison. See, faith moves forward. He trusts God that God will accomplish his purposes. And look what happens. Twenty of them are killed there and then. The rest are left in a, in a trembling mess, running away. Not knowing what's happening, it seems there's an earthquake that causes them to fear. And you ask, who did this? Was it Jonathan? No, it was God. You may ask, what did it? And yes, I would say it was Jonathan's faith that did it as a secondary element. See, faith actually demonstrates itself in action. And then final point, we'll look at the big uh, section from verse 15, this big paragraph from verse 15 to verse 23 together, we see the reward of faith. Not only do we see Jonathan, a man of faith, we see the, the object and the essence of his faith, the waiting of faith, and we see the action of faith. We also see that faith is rewarded. Because Jonathan's work of faith not only brought defeat unto the ranks of the enemy, but he also brought his sense of revival upon Israel. Again, Saul is presented massively uh, in a bad light here. He's there waiting and he hears something and he calls for Ahijah, go get the ark. And Ahijah has his hand on the ark. I suppose that if, if the high priest had his hand on the ark or uh, he, whatever he would say would be the, the word of God. But even as he's they're hoping, starting to prepare for doing this, the, the noise just keeps on growing and, and, and they are completely bewildered of what, of what, about what's happening. And yet, what's happening is clear. God is at work. Even the Hebrews, verse 20, 22, I believe, even the Hebrews who had joined themselves into the, to the Philistines, because again, this is not just history, or this is not just a story, this is history. And so often, in this case, you have uh, traitors that defect to the other side. As soon as they, they understand that the other side is stronger, well, I, I think I'll, I'll join myself to this side. Some of these Hebrews, again, that more pejorative way, had joined themselves to the Philistines. Even them, when they see the victory, they come crawling back or running back all glad. The passage concludes by telling us, doesn't it, that the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. And while the praise rightly and fittingly re re 
is to the Lord. Because really, who authored Jonathan's faith if not the Lord, as we saw this morning? Who gave him that faith? Who answered his prayer? Who, who was there uh, to use him in this otherwise suicidal mission? But the Lord. But nonetheless, we are called to reflect on his faithful manner. Do we, in our own day, believe as he believed? That circumstances do not determine the outcomes. Let me say this again. Do we believe, as he believed on that day, that our circumstances, wherever we find ourselves, whether as a church, whether individuals, in our family, in our work life, in our family life, in our, in our social life, in, our, in whatever places we find ourselves, do we believe that our circumstances do not determine the outcome? Because there is a God who is able to work outside of those circumstances, above and beyond what we may think or ask. Do we believe that God is able to do the impossible in our own lives? Whether in church, in our homes, in our workplaces, with that one person that we are trying to, to reach with the gospel, that seems so hard, that seems so anti, that it seems so, so closed off. Do we believe that God is able to work in his heart? That what is impossible with man is possible with God? Again, here, I, I would be remiss not to mention the Reformation. And I've mentioned Luther today, I've mentioned Calvin, one reformer that I didn't mention, but very much is cut from the same uh, fabric of faith as all the other reformers that I've mentioned, as Jonathan himself is John Knox, a man of faith who stood alone against the, the, all the circumstances that surrounded him. Joined forces with, with those who were persecuted because of the Reformation. Narrowly escaped with his life after being enslaved. Exiled to, to Geneva with Calvin. He eventually finds his way back to Scotland. And here, in, uh, here no, up there in Scotland, he, he preaches the gospel of God's grace. And one man... Seemingly against a, a, a host on a suicidal mission, on an impossible mission. When he had been done, it was clear that God had worked, that God had used him. And all of those aggressive, mocking voices that had uh, dared to, to belittle the work and the gospel of God had to give God the glory had to bow their knee. How did John Knox accomplish so much? His own answer was given in memorable words. Knox declared that one man with God is always in the majority. One man with God is always in the majority. So it was with John Knox, so it was with Luther, so it was with Calvin, so it was with Jonathan. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, what the call for us is to give ourselves, to offer ourselves in faith, to allow God to work through us, even when circumstances seem challenging, even when everything else seems so defying 
and so impossible to have that bold faith that waits upon the Lord to reveal his will. And when God reveals his will, acts upon it. And we should be daring. Was it William Carey or was it Judson? I always confuse. Do attempt great things for God and expect, expect great things from God and attempt great things from God. Is that how he puts it? I, I'm paraphrasing here. I didn't write it down. But that's the kind of faith attitude that we are to have. A bold attitude that expects great things and attempts great things just like Jonathan did. Because nothing, nothing, as Jonathan says there in verse 6, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Well, at least part of it we, we qualify. We're not many. We're few. May the Lord do his saving work in our lives and through us. And may we have faith in him to be trusting and obedient to his words when he reveals.